Welcome to the Endpoints Podcast, presented by the ALS Therapy Development Institute. I'm Jonathan Gang. Today on Endpoints, we're joined by Dr. Lee Hochberg. He's the director of the Center for Neurotechnology and Neurorecovery at Mass General Hospital's Department of Neurology and a neurologist in its neurocritical care and stroke services, a professor of engineering at Brown University, and the director of the Veterans Affairs Center for Neurorestoration and Neurotechnology in Providence, Rhode Island. He's also one of the leaders of the BrainGate Consortium, a collaborative team of researchers from several hospitals and academic institutions working together on devices that aim to allow people with limited mobility to control devices directly with their brains. This technology, which also goes by the name BrainGate, has already helped people with ALS, as well as spinal cord injury and brainstem stroke survivors, to do things like move a computer cursor using only the power of their minds. It's currently the subject of a long-term clinical trial that's been running since 2009, and requires a big commitment from people participating in the study, who have to undergo neurosurgery in order to have sensors placed in their brain. It's certainly cutting-edge technology, but according to Dr. Hochberg, it's based on advancements that have been in the works for decades. Today's BrainGate research really benefits from what has been now 50 plus years of public investment in basic science and in basic brain science, allowing scientific field, engineering field to learn more and more about the brain and particularly about parts of the brain that are involved in the control of voluntary movement and taking that knowledge and beginning to create a technology that can restore communication, restore mobility, and restore independence. So historically, different people will start in different uh, different moments in time, but in the late 1960s and early 1970s, researchers who were really interested in how uh, the arm and the hand are voluntarily controlled, that is how parts of the brain control the arm and the hand, began to record in animals in university research laboratories uh, from single neurons in the brain, and particularly from single neurons in the motor cortex, which is an important part of the brain for the control of voluntary movement. And as those single neurons were being recorded while animals were uh, performing motor tasks, uh, sometimes these were uh, uh, monkeys and even who were playing video games, sitting in a chair, while that research was happening and the animals were playing a video game with their hand on a joystick and moving a cursor, that is moving their hand and moving a joystick and moving a cursor around on a screen, The scientists engaged in the work, and this again is back in the late 60s, early 70s, would record from single neurons, and they'd be able to correlate the firing rate of those individual brain cells, those individual neurons, to the movement that the animal was was making with its own hand. So, for example, if an animal was moving its hand to the right, there may be a neuron that was being recorded that would increase its firing rate quite a bit. When that same animal moved its hand to the left, the firing rate of that neuron would decrease. And if the animal happened to be moving its hand up or down instead of left or right, then the firing rate of that neuron would be somewhere in between. Not high, not low, but but somewhere in between. And even with just the information from that one cell somebody who was studying the activity of that cell might be able to take a little bit of a guess 
for which direction the animal's hand might be moving. If the firing rate was really high, maybe the animal is moving his hand to the right. If it's really low, maybe the animal is moving his hand uh, to the left. These experiments demonstrated that it could be possible to decode the signals the brain sends to the muscles. But the human brain is much more complex than that of a mouse. Over the next few decades, however, the technology to record and interpret signals from the brain grew by leaps and bounds. And now if we uh, somewhat cavalierly skip over to uh, the early 1990s, uh, there was a, a system that was developed or a new array of electrodes that was developed, uh, developed by Dick Norman at the University of Utah uh, called the Utah Array. Uh, that array is a four by four millimeter platform of electrodes, so something that's about the size of a baby aspirin, uh, from which there are 100 electrodes, 96 active electrodes, that each of which are about a millimeter and a half long. And that little hairbrush of electrodes can be placed on top of the brain and tapped into the top of the brain, allowing at first, in university researchers in a laboratory, to, uh, to record from dozens, if not a hundred or more, individual brain cells, individual neurons simultaneously. That again, became a very helpful technology to learn more, not about not only about the motor cortex, but about lots of different parts of the brain that are important for the control of movement. If we now skip to around 1998, 2000 or so, that array of electrodes was being used uh, at Brown, at Providence, Rhode Island, and John Donahue's lab. And in research that was published in 2002 by Misha Soraya, who was then an MD-PhD student working together with John and others, uh, they trained a happy, healthy monkey to play video game. They recorded from the motor cortex of that animal while the animal was playing the video game. And sitting between those two was, kind of not surprisingly, a computer that was able to record all of that brain activity and to build what we might call a map or a filter or commonly now called a decoder that was able to create a relationship between that brain activity and the actual position of the animal's hand while it was playing a video game. After training, not the animal, but training that computer to be able to predict where the animal's hand was in space based only on the firing rates of a few dozen neurons. Uh, researchers then played what might be considered a small trick on the animal, which was to disconnect the joystick. And at that moment, the joystick that the animal was using was no longer controlling the position of the cursor on the screen, but instead the neural activity being recorded from the animal's brain was controlling the neural output directly and was controlling the cursor control directly. So the neural output was being decoded by a computer and in real time as the animal was thinking, loosely speaking, about moving its own hand, the uh, cursor would move to the location on the screen that the animal was trying to get the cursor to move, but it wasn't its hand that was controlling it. It was its uh, neural power, it was its neural activity. That landmark demonstration published in 2002, the purpose of that research was not to demonstrate that happy, healthy, that happy, healthy animals could control uh, cursors with their mind. That was a, a milestone event in what at that point had now been a 30 plus year 
basic science supported by the NIH, supported by the Department of Veterans Affairs and others uh, endeavor to get closer to developing a technology that could help people with paralysis. The possibility that we might be able to record from the brain of somebody who's losing or has lost the ability to use their own arm or hand and to allow that person to control either an external device or perhaps one day even their own arm or hand again uh, simply by thinking about the movement of their own hand. And, uh, and that brought us to uh, the beginning in the early 2000s of the, of the BrainGate pilot clinical trial. This represented a major breakthrough. After decades of trying, scientists had discovered a way to turn the raw electrical signals from the brain into action in the real world. A few years later, in the early 2000s, the BrainGate Consortium was formed to further explore the potential of this technology to help people with paralysis, including people living with ALS. BrainGate, or at least when I'm using the word BrainGate, I could mean any number of, uh, of at least three things. One is there's a BrainGate Consortium, which I'll talk about in just a moment. There's an ongoing BrainGate pilot clinical trial, which is recruiting participants which I'll be able to tell you about more in just a bit as well, and also about the technology itself, an investigational medical technology that we uh, refer uh, informally to as BrainGate. So beginning in the early 2000s, based upon that uh, really important milestone uh, proof of concept, the, the Utah Ray then uh, was uh, advanced in its uh, engineering production to one that would be suitable for medical use. And beginning in 2004, the BrainGate pilot clinical trials were launched asking uh, really a very simple question about whether it was safe and feasible for somebody with tetraplegia, somebody who's losing or has lost the ability to use their arms or legs as the result of disorders such as ALS or spinal cord injury or brainstem stroke, whether that person might be able to control a cursor on a computer screen simply by thinking about the movement of their own hand. So in today's pilot clinical trials, there's a, uh, there's a company that makes the implanted array. That array is then purchased and it's used along with some recording equipment uh, in order for somebody to enroll in the trial. One or more of those arrays, commonly two, but sometimes uh, more often, uh, are placed into the brain, and that person then returns home, and the research that's conducted over the next year or more occurs in that person's living room. So, for example, if there's somebody with ALS, of whom we've had several uh, in our trial, uh, is, uh, is in their own living room, the array is, of course, placed in a sterile operating environment in the, in the OR, in the hospital. After returning home, the recording begins. And that person is then working with us, often two days a week, sometimes more, sometimes just once a week, depending on that person's schedule, uh, to learn more about the parts of the brain that are involved in the control of voluntary movement of the arm and hand, to allow us to learn more about how to create a filter or a decoder that can convert that brain activity to control, for example, of a computer cursor or a robotic arm or another assistive device, and then also to be able to use the device uh, at times even uh, on their own at home uh, with only minimal or, uh, or, or no assistance from our research team. The first participants in the BrainGate study had lost mobility due to spinal injuries or brainstem strokes, conditions that disrupt the brain's ability to communicate with the rest of the body 
but don't involve direct injury to the motor cortex and upper neurons, unlike ALS. We knew from the beginning of the BrainGate research that we are really hoping that these technologies uh, will become helpful, helpful for people with ALS, able to restore and maintain communication uh, and mobility. And we proposed that we wanted to place the, these tiny recording electrode arrays into the same area that is the precentral gyrus of a uh, motor cortex. And when we started to uh, uh, talk about this out loud, uh, there were uh, several really good, uh, outstanding neurologists who questioned whether we should be trying to record at all from that part of the brain because the common lore, which was really the interpretation of, uh, of older scientific data, uh, was that in ALS, the degeneration caused by the disease occurs not only in the spinal cord itself of the motor neurons, but also occurs in the, uh, the so-called upper motor neurons and in specifically in the motor cortex. And so we were asked why, kind of why in the world, if you will, would we want to record from the motor cortex uh, if we're hoping to help somebody with ALS? And we said, uh, thank you for your feedback. Uh, we have some ideas. We're going to do this anyway. And it turned out that one of the questions that we then needed to ask, one of the questions that we needed to find out in our very first participant with ALS was, are we going to be able to record any useful neural activity? In, uh, in somebody with advanced ALS. The first participant in this study with ALS just happened to be a very important person to the ALS Therapy Development Institute, Stephen Haywood, whose family founded ALS TDI in 1999. So the, the first person with ALS who joined us uh, in the study was, was truly incredible. He was a gentleman in his 30s. Uh, he was using a uh, mechanical ventilator. He had lost the ability to speak. He had some movement sometimes of two fingers of his right hand, and he had some movement of his eyes. Uh, but with that eye movement, he was able to use uh, a system that just demonstrated not only was he uh, very much fully there, communicating. He had an extraordinary sense of humor. He knew what he wanted. He knew what he wanted to do on this trial. And, and we were really excited to, uh, to be able to recruit him to be the first participant with, uh, with ALS on the BrainGate trial. And then uh, we began those recording sessions. And uh, the, the question that everybody else had asked, are we going to record anything, quote, useful, unquote, uh, uh, from somebody with advanced ALS from this particular part of the brain, uh, the answer to that from uh, the very earliest sessions was a resounding yes. And to see just how much neural activity, to see all of these neurons that were easily able to record, uh, being recorded from, uh, from his cortex, from his motor cortex, as he was thinking about the movement of his own hand, to see him to be able to control a cursor on his screen uh, as he was thinking about moving his hand right or moving his hand left, uh, to be able to do that to, uh, to not only control that cursor, but to, uh, to play some video games. Uh, he uh, showed us so much. He taught us so much right from the beginning. He taught us, yes, this is possible. Yes, it is possible that this important part of the brain even if, may, even if it may have been injured to some extent by uh, the disease itself, can still be available 
to allow people with ALS to control an external device uh, simply by thinking about the movement of their own hand. Uh, so uh, I have great memories of, of, of working with him, uh, of watching, uh, watching him teach us, watching him use the system uh, in ways and, and push us to use this system in ways that, you know, in those early days we didn't expect. And, uh, you know, he just, just deserves tremendous credit, not only for being a pioneer, but in uh, setting really the, the, the path forward uh, for continued research towards helping people with ALS to maintain communication, to maintain mobility. Dr. Hochberg says BrainGate is eager to enroll more participants in the study, but it's very important for them to understand the commitment required to participate. When people who are interested in learning more about the BrainGate trial and considering uh, enrolling first uh, first inquire, uh, the first thing that we'll do is we'll uh, have a brief phone conversation either with them or with their caregiver uh, just to get a little bit of, of background medical history. Uh, it's kind of a first pass to ensure that uh, the person who's, uh, who's interested in the trial meets at a very broad, uh, you know, from a, from a sky view, uh, the inclusion criteria for the trial, which for the most part, can be summarized as uh, people who have limited use of their hands or are losing the ability to use their hands as a result of either ALS, brainstem stroke, spinal cord injury, or muscular dystrophy, that they're generally otherwise healthy, and that they live within a three-hour drive time of uh, any of our study sites, either uh, in Boston, Providence, uh, Palo Alto, or, uh, or Cleveland. For the people who uh, hear a little bit about our research, perhaps take a look at the website and want to learn more and meet those kind of very broad inclusion criteria, of which, of course, there are additional criteria, uh, I'll then, or other members of our team, will uh, will present the research over about a 45-minute phone call or so. We tell them about the, the array. We emphasize, of course, that being in this research requires neurosurgery that occurs in the hospital and that Importantly, there are risks involved in any neurosurgery. We can describe those in considerable detail. Important to mention that we, of course, do everything we can to minimize those risks. And if we thought that any of the things uh, that uh, could happen uh, that are severe were actually going to happen, then we wouldn't be engaged in this research. But it's a really important uh, discussion between the participant and us to understand those risks and to understand what will happen uh, over the course of the trial. For the people who, who hear that information and continue to be excited about not only uh, being able to use the investigational brain gate system, but also to being able to help other people uh, with ALS or other forms of paralysis, uh, simply by the nature of indicating their interest in, and then uh, participating in the trial, uh, we'll then uh, agree, we'll have a formal informed consent meeting. And then a couple months later or so, we'll, uh, we'd schedule uh, the time for the surgery uh, to place the brain gate arrays person's generally in the hospital for a day or two afterwards. Uh, we advise everybody that we think it's going to be about two days. We've had uh, one person who said the very next day at essentially the 25th hour that they, uh, that they, uh, that they were done, they wanted to go home and that they, uh, uh, that they were, you know, were feeling fine and, and wanted to, uh, you know, be home rather than in the hospital. And, and we of course said, okay, and generally we expect people to be in the hospital for about two days after the, uh, after the surgery, after they return home, Sometime within the next two to three weeks, we uh, begin the recording sessions. Uh, during those two to three weeks, uh, we begin weekly assessments from a safety standpoint. Our uh, physicians and nurses in the trial 
check in with our participant. We take a look at the uh, at the surgical site we t that is on the top of the head. Uh, we take a look at the uh, at the pedestal itself, which is the uh, small piece of titanium that protrudes up above the scalp, which provides the connection uh, between the brain activity that we're able to record and the computers that are decoding that brain activity. And then after two or three of those weekly check-in sessions, our, the rest of our research team appears, uh, which uh, we, uh, we keep to a minimum, even though there may be 40 or 50 people behind it. There's one or two of our research technicians that appear in the home. They set up the system, and I'll describe that system in a little bit more detail in just a moment. The, uh, they uh, enable the recordings to begin, and then we ask our participants to either actually move their hand if there is some hand movement, uh, that's possible, or to attempt to move their hand, and we begin to understand how those neurons that we're able to record in that person can be used to control a cursor on a computer screen or a robotic arm or a tablet computer or any number of other uh, helpful assistive technologies. I should mention that what the rest of that system looks like, even though there's a tiny array or two tiny arrays that may be in the brain, the, uh, the recording equipment looks uh, a little bit like uh, a two or two and a half kind of dorm-sized refrigerators that have been placed on top of each other. It's a rack of equipment that's on wheels. Uh, we keep that rack in, the, in some corner of that, uh, of that person's home when we're not using it, and then we wheel it out and turn it on when it is in use. It has uh, three or four computers that are on there, some uh, equipment that's, uh, that's specialized for recording neural activity, and a few monitors, and we keep that as compact as we can. Generally sits in a corner or a closet uh, when the system's not in use, and then, and then we wheel it out. Uh, so that's uh, what the, the research looks like in many ways. Most important person is the participant in the trial, in their living room, sometimes in their bedroom, whether they're uh, sitting in a wheelchair, sitting uh, in bed, or laying in bed connected to the recording system, and then controlling uh, devices, cursors on a computer screen, tablet computers, or otherwise, uh, just by thinking about the movement of their own As hand. the BrainGate trial continues, Dr. Hochberg is hopeful that even bigger advances are on the horizon, and that the BrainGate technology could someday help restore even more ability to its participants. The upcoming months and years in the BrainGate research are going to be really exciting. Over time, Control over the computer cursor has gotten better and better. Our understanding of how to decode this neural activity and what's embedded in that neural activity, what information is available in that neural activity, uh, continues to uh, improve. Uh, and as we gain that understanding, not only are we able to use uh, technologies that are uh, make it easier for the participant to use the system when we're not there, uh, but we're all also able to, uh, to use that technology in the way that our participants want us to. They tell us what applications they want to use, and we do our very best to make sure those applications are available. They say that they want to use the system at night when we're not there, and we work on ways to make sure that it's available at night so that only a caregiver, for example, is able to uh, uh, get the system up and running. With feedback from participants, we're working towards a system that would be available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And even though from a neuroscience and a computer science and an engineering standpoint, we may have some ideas for how that should work, it's only by trying something and then getting feedback from our participants that we know whether we're on the right track or not. I think in the upcoming months and years, we're going to be not only improving still better the rate of communication, 
that is the speed at which somebody would be able to type uh, on a computer screen or to communicate in other ways uh, uh, via the computer. Uh, we're part of this field, and not just us in the BrainGate team, but uh, throughout uh, the field of neural engineering, is learning more and more about how to decode not only intended hand movement, but also intended speech. And I think as we learn more about recording from areas of the brain that are involved in speech, uh, we may be able to develop a system that would allow somebody uh, to not only control a computer by intended hand movement, such as by uh, uh, moving uh, or thinking about moving a uh, computer mouse or moving their hand over a, a, a tablet computer or, uh, or a touchpad, uh, but also to uh, attempt to speak. And even though that speech may be dysarthric uh, or, uh, or uh, maybe absent as the result of uh, disease or injury, it may be possible to be able to decode in real time that intended speech. And I think the control over assistive devices, the control over devices that may be able to reanimate uh, one's own limb, the, the better and reliable control over a computer, which is so important uh, for people who are able-bodied or for people who may be losing or have lost the ability to use their arms uh, and hands. Uh, all of that is, is very much the focus uh, of our BrainGate research. When I uh, when I describe the research, when I'm giving a, a, a scientific lecture, I'll often start uh, with a mission. And uh, in many ways, that mission is for somebody with ALS, I want to be able to assure that person that they will never lose the ability to communicate. Or if they're losing the ability to communicate, that we'll be able to maintain and improve upon that ability. For somebody who's losing or has lost the ability to use their arms or hands, I want to be able to tell them with confidence that they'll be able to control the computer as intuitively as they were before the onset of the disease or injury, and that they'll one day be able to move again. And I want to extract that one day. And what the mission really is, is to be able to tell somebody they'll be able to communicate easily again tomorrow. They'll be able to move again easily tomorrow. And those mission statements are without reference to any particular technology. Uh, they're reference to a very clear, plainly stated clinical goal. And everything and everybody involved in our BrainGate research is focused on doing the fundamental neuroscience, the fundamental neuroengineering, the computer science, the decoding that will allow somebody with tetraplegia to be able to control an external device, to be able to communicate, and hopefully soon to be able to regain mobility uh, simply by thinking about the movement uh, of their own hand. For more information about BrainGate, you can visit their website at www.braingate.org. To learn more about ALS-TDI's research to end ALS, you can visit us at als.net slash als-research. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at endpoints at als.net.